I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, fans. Welcome back to another episode of La Jamon Latte. This week... Oh my God, I became your mother for two reasons. The first being that I have become completely obsessed with using the L'Oreal Skin Genius tool. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But basically, you take a selfie, it analyzes your skin, and then gives you a skin age. And every single time I use it, I get older and older. Despite my intensive skincare routine, it's very upsetting. Secondly, This week, I have become fearful of technology. The Indian government banned TikTok, basically because they're real sus on the Chinese government stealing user data. America and Australia were also both like, "Mm, we'll look into it. So yeah, I deleted it. Now, don't get me wrong. I can waste a solid day on TikTok, but I was also secretly a little bit pleased to delete it because every time I open it, I feel like I'm a golden girl. So yeah, it's official. Watch out because next I'm going to have a flip cover on my phone and I'll be scrolling using just my pointer finger. Today on the podcast, women aren't funny. What a clickbaity heading, right? I explore the reasons why this was such a socially accepted opinion when in fact it's not true at all. Then we asked you in the Facebook group and on Instagram, what makes a pub a pub? And it couldn't have been worse timing for me. Honestly, living in Melbourne, we've just gone into season two of lockdown and putting this segment together was highly torturous. Finally, I reviewed the new Netflix rom-com Desperados, a film desperado for a laugh and getting none from me. I really wish I was funny. People laughing at your jokes is the ultimate form of validation, which you know is what I crave most in life. Unfortunately, as my boyfriend will tell you any chance he gets, I am not funny, which unlike when I'm paid any form of compliment, I find this so easy to accept because I have grown up my whole life believing women aren't funny. I remember sitting in a bar when I was 22 or 23 with a friend of a friend who was a strong brand feminist. And this was before this fourth wave of feminism hit when it was still a dirty word, even amongst women. And I said to her with absolute conviction, like an absolute little mole too, women aren't funny. I remember genuinely racking my brain, trying to think of funny women, and I could only produce Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, and obviously Kathleen Kim. And I really believed I could only name a few because there just were no funny women. I was so cocky and confident because I had the numbers too. The boys at our table were on my side and more broadly, it was the popular societal opinion. 
obviously I was right. She promptly left and I assumed after her vegan pizza, she popped on her ironically expensive hipster bike and pedaled her dreadlocks home like we even joked about it. This is one of those memories that wakes me up in a cold sweat at 3am overwhelmed with embarrassment because really she was enlightened when I was ignorant and covered in layers of internalized misogyny. Women Aren't Funny really was a culturally accepted norm until only like five or ten years ago, and a quick Google search shows why this is. The interwebs are dripping with articles written by mainstream media that I cannot believe were published after 1950. I sent a few of them to Jess the other La Dame and Latte co-founder, and she legit thought I had sent her a bunch of satire. But they're not. They're from The New Yorker, The Guardian, BBC, and my ultimate favourite, the most informative slash condescending and offensive, was published by Vanity Fair. A fat old white guy, surprise, called Christopher, mansplained to me the reasons why, bless their hearts, women aren't funny. And fans, they are deep. Apparently, humor is the only thing that men have going for them, so they need it more than women. I mean, I don't disagree. It's definitely high on the list. We've all received a dick pic we never asked for, and I'm confident that nobody has ever received said dick pic and thought, wow, that's beautiful. I'm in love. I need to marry this man immediately. Women, on the other hand, we have boobs, so we don't need humor. We just have to laugh and look pretty to impress a man, which aids our primary goal in life, which is to get pregnant. Christopher believes this is another reason why women aren't funny, because, quote, the question of being funny for a woman is a secondary one, because we are innately aware of a higher calling. Wow, you cannot make this shit up. It's not just old white guys sharing their opinions either. There's also scientific research. And in this age of Pete Evans and the anti-vax gang, I really want to throw my full support behind science. But this one study was conducted by Aberswith University, which kind of sounds like a place where I could purchase a Bachelor of Medicine certificate for like $500. So they found that 63% of men were supposedly funnier than women. And on average, men have higher humor producing abilities. And just like Christopher, the lead researcher, Mr. Dr. Graingross, attributed this result to evolution. As Christopher explained to us, women love a funny man. Obviously, it's the defining characteristic of a good date. Sure, he stunk and ate with his mouth open, but he was so funny, so impregnate me stat. But Dr. Grengross adds to that mansplanation. We're attracted to humor because wit is linked to intelligence, which is not a lie. But he then goes on to say that it's the instinct of a woman that dates back to hunter-gatherer days for women to find an intelligent mate for survival. Um, okay, doctor, but it's not 2,000 years ago, it's 2020, and all I need for survival is to wear a mask and stay inside. Both men also suggest societal expectations have a part to play in our unfunniness. Christopher reminded me that women are taught by their mothers not to be too intelligent or funny because we don't want to be a threat to men who might not impregnate us if they view us as competition. 
To confirm, this article was written while Obama was president, not while your grandpa was courting your grandma at the local dance hall. He also says 50% of comedy is based on filth. And um, women don't even poop, so how could they possibly make dirty jokes? Unthinkable. Well, let me tell you something, Christopher. As I was physically birthing a child, a child whose dad I attracted despite the fact I am significantly more intelligent than him, I was cracking some of the filthiest jokes, some of my finest work, I'd say, and my number one fan, also myself, strongly appreciated them. So, Christopher, you can go and eat a bowl of dicks. Look, maybe that was too harsh because Christopher does think that some women are funny. Most of them, though, when you come to review the situation, he says, are hefty or dykey or Jewish or some combo of the three. You know, like Ellen or Roseanne, which mm, in itself is actually quite masculine, so they don't really count. This article was published a few years ago, and I think it's the kind of misogynistic view that I was completely blinded by without understanding the reasons behind the view. I can only hope that, like me, Christopher, and honestly, the authors of the hordes of similar articles look back at this view and find it as offensive and totally ignorant as I do. Or, alternatively, as journalists in a dying industry that they lost their jobs, are living on the streets, and are trying to feed themselves with their comedic street performing acts, which obviously come innately to them as men, but failing. It is blindingly clear to me now that those views have more stretch than a rubber band. In truth, women are funny as fuck. Obviously, I'm living proof. Jokes. But I couldn't name more than four women, not because we're not funny, but because I couldn't see funny women. Women previously haven't had the same platforms and the same opportunities as men to display their humor. We've spoken in previous episodes about Hollywood's Saggy Balls Club, and looking back at the most iconic comedies of the noughties, like The Hangover or White Chicks, they're all male-dominated films. Women get to play the love interest, of course. And that's not to say women were dormant, because the noughties was prime time for rom-coms and pop culturally relevant films. And that's my favorite genre. I'm not going to diss on them, you know that. But I'm also never going to say that Regina George is a funnier character as Alan from The Hangover. And yes, there are definitely exceptions to the rule, but they're rare, like Sarah Silverman or Joan Rivers and Amanda Bynes. Amanda Bynes was a trailblazer. She's the man is groundbreaking. But come to 2012, we hit the rise and rise of the funny bitch. I think it's probably a combination of women actually not being told to be dumb to have a baby, but rather that we can do whatever we want. This fourth wave of feminism encouraging women to push open previously bolted doors and the rise of digital platforms giving women channels to speak freely where they can't be denied opportunities by the boys club. I shouldn't actually have to make a list of funny bitches because nobody would ever ask you to make a list of funny men, but in the spirit of proving a point and giving you, the La Dame and Latte community, copious hours of laughs, here you go. It only took mm, 50 years, but in 2016, Amy Schumer was the first female comedian to headline Madison Square Garden. She was on fire. Her comedy series, The Amy Schumer Show, had just won an Emmy. If you haven't seen it, you should, but you've also definitely seen the gifts it generated. Then for mine, she changed the face of rom-coms because she plays these lead female characters that don't just like work in publishing. Um, Actually, that's a lie. She 
does work in publishing in Trainwrecked. But she's not a size six conventional Hollywood babe. And the lead males in her films aren't oil paintings either, although Bill Hader has definitely grown on me thanks to Amy. And Christopher, if you want to talk about filthy comedy, there's a scene in Snatched where she ducks into the bathroom to clean her cooch with water because she's about to get a stoop. Hilaire. Also, please come back, Amy, like I know you're a mum, but I need you in my life. Mindy Culling, you know she's another one of my faves. I'm obsessed because we both love McDonald's and rom-coms. Rebel Wilson in Fat Pizza, tops, but also in Pitch Perfect. She improv like 90% of her lines, which those are movies I love because they combine my two favorite things, laughing and singing in movies. Then we have Kate McKinnon, who did a better job of Justin Bieber in Calvin's than Justin did. But it's not just in film and television where we're seeing more of the ladies. And honestly, live comedy is not my forte, so I can't really speak about the stand-up circuit. But when they're on Netflix, I definitely feel qualified to comment. Ali Wong Hard Knock Life might be one of the funniest stand-ups I have ever seen and it's never funny when someone else relays the jokes so I won't just watch it. Then there's Hannah Gadsby, Celia Pacola who I've mentioned previously. On the socials, the best people to follow, Alyssa Limpira, Sarah Levine, Lindsay Thiessen and my Australian favourite Becky Lucas who has an excellent piece on how to make fruit salad. If you're still thirsty for the laughs, we've got even more comedy recos over at LaDumandLatte.com. Nice plug there, Nicole. So yeah, I can definitely name more than four hilarious bitches, and I can safely conclude that women are funny as fuck. So yeah, fuck you, Christopher. This week, we asked the La Jam and Latte community in our Facebook group, La Jam and Latte, and on the gram at La Jam and Latte Media, what makes a pub a pub? Now, I realize that not all of our listeners come from Britain or the British colonies, which is where pubs come from. So let me explain what a pub is by definition. Yeah, I'm going back to year 10 essay styles again. According to the Collins Dictionary, a pub is a building where people can have drinks, especially alcoholic drinks, and talk to their friends. Many pubs also serve food. Mm, For mine, I'm not going anywhere to drink unless I can eat. A pub is not a bar. It's short for public house, meaning you can't actually turn people away. But recently, we've seen the rise of the gastropub, which really blurs the line between a pub and a bar. Gastropubs are basically establishments in bougie areas that had OG pubs but then saw potential dollar-dollar bills by bouging the place up with smart architecture, millions of rooms, huge crowds, minimal seating, minimal food, and dress codes. It's very exhausting for the over-30s like me who like minimum effort when drinking outside the house. So fans, that's why we asked you, what makes a pub a pub? Is it still the OG or is it more of a bourgeois outing these days? And fans, there is no doubt you are all OG. Like, again, if you didn't know what a pub was, you probably would think we all live under a bridge in a cardboard box to actually want these kind of things in an establishment. But as John summed up really nicely, with a pub, it's all about the charm. If you know, you know. The first thing that makes a pub a pub is the name. It definitely does not have a one-word cool name like Ivy or Seven or Boutique. It's named in one of three ways. Number one, the name of a place like The Terminus or The Railway. 
Or number two, the name of a person like Brady O'Reilly's or the Nicole, an establishment that will definitely come into existence just as soon as one of my get-rich schemes comes into fruition. Or three, after an animal like the wolf and I, elephant and wheelbarrow or the flying duck. It's very simple because it was likely named by an old man like 150 years ago who was definitely off his tits. The menu is the single most important element of a pub. I'm not a 65-year-old dedicated drinker-slash-gambler or a tradie, so I'm not going to a pub just to drink. And fans, neither are you. We're going to eat and drink. By far the most popular defining feature of a pub is a good palmer. Yes, I said palmer and not palmy, you weirdos. Dunkin' a Biscuit, Christina, Georgia, Jess, literally all of you just want a good palmer. You can take everything else off the menu. Like, obviously, you still need the actual blackboard menu above the bar, as fan Sarah says is essential for a pub. But yeah, it can just basically say palmer and list the drinks on it. Because nobody is having the fish and chips or the pot pie. And if they do, they definitely are regretting it as soon as they see the palmer come out. If you must have some variety at your pub, just give us different types of palmers. A Mexican palmer, Hawaiian palmer. I don't mind mixing it up to a very limited extent every now and then. Now... Don't at me because I know Palmer literally means ham, but my Palmer does not have ham. Mixing meats is just not for me. It's not kosher. And as you know, I'm not religious at all, but I just don't want to mash my pig and chicken together, okay? It's also imperative that there is full cheese coverage. Don't even think about sprinkling a few shreds of cheese and leaving me with one third of the Palmer that's just chicken and sauce. I'm a mum now and I will get my Karen on and send that shit straight back to the kitchen. Give me end-to-end golden brown cheese. I recently had the tragic experience of visiting a pub that never mind the end-to-end cheese, they didn't even have a Palmer on the menu. And in my book, someone deserves a very long-term jail sentence for that reckless decision. Naturally, I wanted to walk out and attend the pub on the next corner, which is also another defining feature. They're always on a corner. But I was there for a birthday, so I was stuck in this fresh hell with a schnitzel and coleslaw that the waiter tried to tell me it was just as good. I was like, um, righto, well, I'll be paying you with Monopoly money because it's just as good. I often tell myself I'm going to write a letter about that when I get home, but then I get home and I'm distracted because my dog's peed on the carpet or something. But this time, I followed through. I did it. And by write a letter, I mean I left them a negative Google review. Another absolutely critical aspect of the Palmer is the price. Now, Fan Grace reckons it should be $15. I'm a little bit more flexible because I'm willing to pay more for a Palmer that is not from a McCain box in the freezer. I'll pay like $20 or $25, but it better be a pot and Palmer. If you're going to charge me over $30 just for the Palmer alone, it better include a bloody 24-karat gold crown because only a king is paying that much for a Palmer. For drinks, fans Madeline and Mark want beer on tap, obviously. Michael is mildly bougier than the rest of us and would like some craft beer. Bridget likes to get wild and she wants tequila specifically as shots and purchased as a drink special all night long. The drink specials are integral. Pubs have no right charging us $12 for a shot because they're not a bar. So yeah, Bridget, I'll come join you with the shots after I finish my Palmer. 
Decor. Decor is key to immediate identification of a pub. Correct decor is important to a pub as auto-tune is to Kanye. You walk in and the first thing that hits you is the scent. Fans Mark and Christina immediately recognize the combination of the old mahogany bar mixed with carpet that soaked up years of beer and cigarette spills. It's stale but comforting. It's best you're wearing shoes inside a pub because your feet will immediately stick to the ground. Again, that's spilt beer that just hasn't been cleaned up. The walls also must be covered in sporting paraphernalia. AFL, NRL, cricket, horse racing, where fan Sarah's from, it's of the car racing variety and wow, that is a high level bogan pub. There's also a makeshift stage in the corner where the local cover band, Christine's preference is Johnny Wonderpants, which wow, that really screams cover band, is playing in the corner. They're probably playing some midnight oil and next to that, there's a dark corner for drunk makeouts that will happen when the cover band steps up to the romantic banger like horses. You'll definitely regret making out with someone you meet at a pub, but you can always blame those cheap tequila shots. Sarah also says a minimum of three pokies are required for a pub. And Sarah, that must be a pub for one because I don't think I've ever seen less than 50 pokies in a pub. There's also a beer garden outside. And while there is most definitely beer, there's most definitely not a garden. You won't find any peonies or roses out there. If there's a garden bed at all, it's likely you'll find cigarette butts planted in there. The beer garden isn't so much of a garden as it is some plastic grass and picnic tails. But as Christina says, dogs are definitely allowed to make it a pub. Mmm, dunnies. Being female, this is quite unfamiliar to me, but apparently the male toilets in such an establishment are quite important. Anthony says there must be troughs and urinal cakes, and Michael adds a real pub has a clean shelf to do gear off. I guess if you're getting cheap meals and tequila shots, why not spend the savings on a little bit of nose candy if that's your brand? As you may expect with that sort of expired decor, pubs generally attract a clientele to match. A pub is not a pub unless there are locals drinking out of handles, says Fern. I'll add that the locals are usually 65-year-old men who smoke two packs a day and frequently make wildly racist comments. Then there are the tradies having knockoff drinks, so by the time you get there at the pub after work, they've been drinking for six hours, so they are loose. This is great news for you because you can wear whatever you want, free of judgment, Jeff froths. There's no requirements for a shirt and pants. To be honest, there's barely a requirement for pants at all. Personally, I also am really enjoying this right now because elastic waistband pants are the only things not judging me right now. So there you have it, fans. A good pub is really like any Taylor Swift album. Simply excellent. Desperados is the newest Netflix rom-com starring a bunch of people whose faces you know, but can't quite pinpoint where you know them from. Any credit that Netflix has built in this genre with To All the Boys I Loved Before or The Kissing Booth has been destroyed like Hiroshima with this absolute bomb of a movie. Wesley, played by Nassim Pradrad, who is Jasmine's best friend in the live remake of Aladdin and also an SNL alum, is a perpetual adolescent in her 30s who cannot get her shit together. Cue first cliche of overdue bills and dead indoor plants to really drive that fact home. After getting rejected from yet another job because she's an unprofessional dead shit, she whinges to her two best friends, Brooke, Anna Camp, who is from Pitch Perfect, and Kaylee, who I actually looked at her IMDb and still can't work out where I know her from. She's a secondary character in a lot. 
Anyway, she complains over wine and cheese because we know that's how you relate to millennials. But honestly, I found the most relatable part of this, the cat that refused their love. Wesley's love life is also a disaster, and she goes on a blind date with Sean, who is Winston from New Girl. He opts out of the date as soon as she opens her mouth because that's how annoying she is. I wish I had taken a page out of Sean's book at this point and opted out of this movie. Alas, on her way out, she trips and knocks herself out. When she wakes up, the hottest guy is standing there, Jared, who is Robbie Amell from Upload and the Duff. It's fate. He must be the love of her life. Because she's concussed, she doesn't immediately ruin it by talking. So she runs with it and pretends she is a completely different person who doesn't like fun things like hot dogs deep fried in donuts because he doesn't. Jared tells her that she's the only normal girl left in LA and she might be the one. She froths, but her friends are a little bit stressed because this is a big fat lie, just like the trailer for this movie. Yeah, her friends are kind of onto something. It doesn't really seem like pretending to be someone else is going to pan out too well. Well, if you thought that, congratulations. You don't need to watch the end of this movie, but definitely keep listening to my review. So after they stoop, Jared ghosts her for five days. Naturally, she gets white girl drunk with her trusty friends and they write him, well, a drunk white girl email, dissing on his thin dick, his cunnilingus skills, eggplant emoji, eggplant emoji, eggplant emoji, you know the gist, we've all been there before. But then he calls from Mexico. He was in a car accident and has been in a coma for the past five days. He left his phone at the hotel. Um... Just recall the email because he obviously hasn't checked it. Please just recall the email and save me another one and a half hours of physical pain. Please? Nope, they don't. They decide they'll all go to Mexico, find his phone, and then delete the email before he can read it. Ugh. Once they get to Mexico, the next hour is gag after gag after unfunny, overplotted gag. Through a series of unfortunate events, she ends up looking like she's molesting a 12-year-old boy. She gets turkey slapped by a dolphin, gets kicked out of the hotel, breaks back in and gets electrocuted and sent to a Mexican jail, which, FYI, is definitely not a Mexican jail. I've seen world's toughest prisons and this was not it. Before she got kicked out of the hotel, coincidentally, she bumped into Sean, who just happened to be on a holiday in Cabo at the exact same time by himself. Yes, you know exactly where this movie is going because it could not be more algorithmic, which also explains why it's so painful to watch. It's watching maths. It's literally watching someone step out an equation in front of you when you already know the answer. Sean bails her out of jail and her friends by this point are done with her crazy and carrying the only actual comedy in this movie. They're like, we're done with you. We're leaving. And they leave her to spend the day alone with Sean. Cute, more unfunny tropes like the classic swerve to avoid a goat and crash your car. Ugh, just so done. Wesley and Sean DM and drink Coronas before he takes her back to the airport to meet Jared, who is ready to go home. On the plane home, Wesley takes Jared's phone while he's sleeping because she's going to delete the email, obviously. But she doesn't. She shows him the email because he should see the real her. Unsurprisingly, he doesn't want a bar of the real her because she's annoying and he's also super superficial. Super superficial. Ugh, what a waste. She has hit rock bottom, which honestly wasn't much of a fall. 
But then things really start to come together, as they usually do at the end of a movie. She gets a job that Sean recommended her for. Then she apologizes to her friends and they hug it out. Then she stalks Sean on Instagram to find out where he is and goes and meets him. He's on a blind date, but whatever. She slides in and she's like, let's get together. And Sean's like, "Mm, probably not. It's a bit too much. But then he swiftly changes his mind immediately and chases her out. He gives her a speech and they kiss. Finally, it's over. Oh my God. I much more enjoyed IMDb where I knew this cast from rather than watching a single second of the actual movie itself. It was more overcooked than charcoal and it caused me physical pain to sit through all one hour and 46 minutes of it. I give it a 3 out of 10 because the actors weren't actually awful, but even Matthew McConaughey and Jared Leto winning Oscars for Dallas Buyers Club didn't make it a good movie. So there was really no hope for this shit show. Thanks for listening to Large Arm and Latte. If you loved the podcast, a five-star rating and review would really help validate us. Large Almond Latte exists because of your opinions, so keep sharing them in the Facebook group Large Almond Latte, on the gram at Large Almond Latte Media, and visit largealmondlatte.com to read, write, engage, subscribe to our newsletter, and generally get your peepers around even more brunch banter. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.